We are in the book of 1 Peter, so I invite your attention there. We continue our fall series, Not Home Yet. And as we've seen, this is a series, uh, uh, well, actually, I should say, as we've seen, this is a book that is written to people who are in the world, but not of the world. Those are the words and the ways in which Jesus described uh, to his disciples what it meant to follow him, that we are in the world, but not of the world. And Peter picks up on similar language and says, we are are passing through this world. We are exiles in this world. This world is not our home, yet we've been placed here for a season, for a time. And the book of 1 Peter gives us instruction of what that life is to look like as we prepare for what God has in eternity. And as I think about being in exile, or we think about living in a, in a country or even in a culture that doesn't feel like home, it reminds me of the, the years that, that our family lived in Eastern Europe. We were serving with the International Mission Board. We were, we were serving in the city of Athens. And I can just remember being in a culture where you just don't fully understand what all is going on. And in fact, there's so many uh, uh, occasions that, 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 uh, that come to mind. I can remember one time, you know, we, we were living in a little apartment and we had done our laundry and we only had a washing machine, not a dryer, which was very common there. And so we were putting our, our clothes out on, uh, on a clothesline. And we just happened to realize as we looked across at all the other apartments that no one else had their clothes out on the line, which just seemed a little strange. And then we figured out later in the day when this huge dust storm rolled through and covered everything in dust, and, uh, and we were asking people, what is going on? And, and they said, well, well, didn't you see the weather? And I'm like, see the weather? I can't even say my phone number in Greek. How, how am I supposed to understand what the weatherman's saying about this dust storm coming in? Uh, and so you, you, you realize that, that you're at home, but you're not really at home. In fact, they would have holidays at times. Uh, one of the first holidays we, we had uh, was something called Clean Monday, and all the kids had kites. And some of our Greek friends said, hey, come over for lunch and, and bring your kites. And we're like, kites? They're like, yeah, all the kids fly kites on, on Clean Monday. And I'm like, well, we don't have any kites, and the stores are closed. And, and so you, you, get, you, you, you get this idea that, that you're just not fully aware of what all's happening. And then one of our holidays rolls around, like Thanksgiving. And they don't have Thanksgiving. And we, we're missing family. And we know what our family's doing. And, and yet we were able to get together with some other missionaries there in the, in the country of Greece. And we all brought food and we had a celebration of Thanksgiving. And it was something that we had in common. No one had to say, well, this is the kind of food to bring to a Thanksgiving meal, right? We knew that. No one had to say, hey, bring your football with you, because we all knew that, what do you do? We throw the football around after, after you have the meal. I mean, we understood the culture, the values, all the things that were important for that holiday. And I use that as an example to say, that's who we are. We, we sometimes are, are in this world and we're living and things don't always make sense to us. And the reverse is also true. People look at us and they see the way we live and what we hold true as values and, 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 and trying to live for the glory of God and they shake their head because they don't get us either. And that's why Peter wrote this book. He wrote this book to help us understand what it was like to live that exiled life. In chapter one, that's really what was laid out for us, was, was just trying to understand what it meant to live as an exile. Chapter 2 takes it a a next level by describing the exiled life, not as an individual, but in the context of community, as an exile living in an exiled community, speaking, of course, of the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Last week, uh, Tim Handyside preached while I was out, and he gave a fantastic message. If, if you haven't heard it yet, I know it's online. Excellent message, Tim. I'm not sure exactly where you're at, but thank, thank you for, uh, for, for your word. Um, he was preaching an, uh, on the emphasis of mutual love. That, that we have a commitment to one another that is really foundational, even for what we're going to be talking about today, this idea of how we are connected, how we are committed to one another. We're going to see again that, that, that this passage is speaking to us as Christian exiles and giving us the identity that we might need to be reminded of. In fact, as I read through verses 4 through 10, couple things that I want to point out to you. First of all, I want you to notice how the readers are addressed, not with terms that are individual, but it's all in the plural. The second thing is I want you to take note of the powerful descriptions of the body of Christ. In fact, I told the first service, these verses could really be a sermon series in themselves. They are so rich. And as we think about the different metaphors and the different descriptions that are given to the body of Christ, they help us understand who we are, but also what our responsibilities are right here today, living the exiled life. So with that in mind, let's look at 2 Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we're going to begin, pick back up in verse 4. Let's read the entire section together down to, for, to verse 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. See? I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. And here's verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a rich passage of Scripture for us to consider. And again, there's a lot of, of uh, metaphors used, a lot of symbolism here, but each one of them have, have rich meanings and something for us to be considering. I want to begin with the first point, only two points today, and the first one is this. God has a plan, and His plan is to develop a Christ-like church. We're going to see that, that not only is Christ described as the living stone, but we are described as living stones, that our identity comes from Him. And so what's important to Christ is important to us, how He lived His life in this earth 
is how we are also called to follow in his pattern as well. So we see here in verse 4 that there is a statement that says, as you come to him, as you come to him, this is a picture of someone responding to Christ. It's not enough to say, well, I believe that Christ existed or I believed that Christ was a historical figure. This is saying that I am coming to him. I am responding to him. In fact, this would have been a phrase used in Old Testament times to speak even of worship, as I worship him. And it's picked up even in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 4. It says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. So let me ask you this morning, can you remember the time in which you responded to him? Can you remember the time in which you drew near to Christ, recognizing for the first time who he was and how he could, could change your life, how he could give you new life? Because that's what the author, Peter, is saying here. First, we come to him. We respond to him. And there's a metaphor used here in verse 4. It says that Jesus is a living stone. What a strange description, right? I mean, how does a stone live? I mean, this is, this is really something that, 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 that may sound bizarre, but again, the symbolism is rich. Thinking of, of a stone, you think of stability, and you think of, of living, and you think of, of the life and the growth that takes place. And so to see these two images come together, even as it says, you, you exiles, really, you yourselves are living stones. We, as the body of Christ, are described here as living stones. So we're going to talk about what that metaphor means, but let me begin by saying and asking you, what are some other metaphors of the church? Because each of these metaphors help us to see what God is doing uh, among his church. One of them is the church as a body. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 12. Think about the body has many parts, different pieces, different responsibilities. And, and we see that within the church body. The, we see also the church as a building or as a temple. There's a number of verses that, that use that picture that the church is not, not a physical building, but the people are like the building, like the temple. The church is also uh, described with some agricultural terms like a plant or a field or a vineyard or a vine that is connected to a branch. We also uh, see that the church is sometimes referenced as an army. We are fellow soldiers, Paul tells Timothy. Also in, in uh, uh, we're, we see that there's descriptions of the church being like a family. We think of brothers and sisters in Christ, or we think about the term the bride of Christ. So we think about the, the family metaphors. All of these are, are descriptions that, that, that help us understand the unique characteristic of what it means to be part of the church. And this idea of being a living stone comes from that building or temple metaphor. So it's kind of a, a metaphor that's a subset, if you will, of a, of a larger metaphor. And if you look again at verse 5, it says, you yourselves as living stones are a what? A spiritual house being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. So, so we see that these stones are part of a building. 
And if you think about that in the context of a local church, we are each put here and we're put together to, to form a structure that upholds something, right? That upholds a confession of faith. And we think even about, about when Peter made the confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. And what, what was the response of, of Jesus? On this rock, that's right. He said, I'm going to build my church on what? That confession. So we see that, that image again of the, of the stone or the rock, that it's foundational for, for what we even gather uh, together to proclaim. That's our confession as well. And yet it's, it's also something that's alive because we've been given new life in Christ. In Jesus Christ, he, he conquered death. He rose from the grave and we've been given eternal life. And so that's where this idea of, of a stone that is alive, you bring the two together. And yet, what is it that these stones build? It says a spiritual house. The Old Testament term would have been what? A temple, right? And think about the Old Testament temple. That was God's house. And that's where God's presence was found. If you read back through the Old Testament about the tabernacle, about the temple, you see that's where the presence of God dwells. And yet in the New Testament, Jesus takes that temple language and he applies it first to himself and then he applies it to his followers. In John chapter 2, look at what he says, beginning in verse 19. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was the embodiment of divine presence. And so he was taking that temple language upon himself but he's not only described as the temple, he's also described as the cornerstone of the church, which is also described as a temple. And again, God's presence dwelt in the Old Testament temple. God's presence dwelt, divine presence embodied in Jesus Christ. And that means that for us today, as we gather, God is dwelling here among us. His spirit is here with us. As we were lifting praise in song, as we were praying, we were praying to an audience of one, to God himself, as, as he inhabits the praises of his people. We're not just singing to nothingness. We're, we're gathered together, and the presence of God is right here with us. As we sing, as we worship, as we declare his word, it's, it's all fueled by his presence. In fact, this is how it's, it's said in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want, you to, I want you to see some similar language. This is the author Paul, and he's also writing about what it means to be an exile or a, a stranger, a foreigner. But he's also using temple language, and he's also talking about the presence of God. Here's what he says. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a what? A holy temple 
in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together. For what? For God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, that's a powerful description of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. You see, we, we've not come here as some groups gather in this world, and they gather in rooms similar to this to be entertained, don't they? Well, that's not why we've gathered. This isn't a day of entertainment. This is a day of, of worship. This is a day of declaration. This is a day of being equipped so that we can serve our Lord. And so this is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to live as an exile in a world that is not to be our home. And yet at the same time, we have responsibilities while we are here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says it as well. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? What a, what a great reminder for us, particularly as we go through times that may be challenging, may be downright difficult to know that, that we are not alone. That we, it's not a matter of us being able to do it ourselves. It's a matter of the Spirit working and living in us. So again, just as God dwelt in the temple of Israel, now by His Spirit, God indwells the new temple, the church. And so if you want to ask, should we have a, a high view of God's church today? I would say absolutely. In fact, we learn in the book of Acts that it says that, that, that the church is what He purchased with his own blood. And so there is a, a high view of the church. We as living stones, because we share in the resurrection life of our Lord and Savior, because we have the presence of God living here with us. God is in us. We are living stones. For Peter to picture believers in such a manner, possessing spiritual life in Christ is very, very significant. Because there is nothing, as I said earlier, more lifeless than a stone. And so he's, he's making a strong argument that what was dead is now alive. And that is our testimony. It's also something that was prophesied. Under the, the days of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there was a longing for the Messiah to come, a rescuer, a redeemer. And oftentimes it was misunderstood, even in the days of Jesus, that, that he had come to be some kind of a political Messiah. And yet that wasn't his objective. His objective was to save souls, to give life to those who were dead. And he did so when he came by fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies and being that promised Messiah. Here's one of the descriptions from the prophet Ezekiel. This is what it says about, now, of course, Ezekiel's looking forward to the time in which Jesus would come. But listen to, to how it connects to the passage we've been reading today. It says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. You'll be forgiven. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And look at verse 27. I will place my spirit within you. You see the connection to 1 Peter 2? The spirit is here. The spirit gives life, yes, to us individually, but also collectively. That's what makes the church, when you think the plural form, gathered together. And notice the close connection that people will have with God 
No longer would they, would they just find his presence in a tabernacle or a temple. Now they would find God's presence within their midst. This is what he said in verse 28. You will be my people and I will be your God. Just think of how the people in Ezekiel's day must have longed for that kind of connection with God. Well, compare that to what we read in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Notice whom you belong to. God claims you as his own, a people for his possession. Goes on in verse 10 to say it this way. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are God's people. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves the truth of who we are in him because we have an adversary that whispers other things in our ears about who we are. And our identity is found in Christ. And so I I pray that that there's a a measure of encouragement here because it says we are God's people. How did it happen? It said you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we are reminded that we've been been forgiven by God, his mercy. We've been graced by God with with good gifts that he has given his own. And that, that we see that we have been made alive as living stones. Again, the living stones of verse 5 are a result of coming to the living stone in verse 4. And that's where we find our life. Those who have come to Christ are living stones. And in fact, this is the idea of a regenerate church. That we aren't just a gathering of, of individuals that come from anywhere. We are a gathering of individuals who come who have professed faith in Christ and who have been given new life in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that that everyone who is present or everyone who's watching has done that. They may be at a point where where they are exploring, where they are seeking, trying to understand what does it mean to follow Christ? Well, I will tell you, it means that he will give you new life that he will forgive you of your sins. That's where we read in verse 10 about about there was a time when we didn't have his mercy, but now we've received his mercy. So it tells us there there is a point in which one becomes a believer, a follower. And maybe there are some with us today that that are wrestling with that decision. And I would encourage you, pursue Christ, seek him, come to know him, follow him, let him give you the blessings of his grace and his mercy and that you yourself would become a living stone. Let's pick back up in the middle of verse 5. It describes these individuals as being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, again, there's so much just in that idea of being part of a royal priesthood. A, A king priest, that's your role. We looked at this last fall. We took three or four weeks just to consider our identity as priest kings, as part of, 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 uh, of the priesthood here. But, but notice that, that there's a responsibility, that we are called to bring spiritual sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament time, they brought sacrifices. What did it look like? They would bring animals to the temple, right? And there would be, there would be uh, sacrifice. There would be death that would be pictured in front of them as, as uh, a reminder of the, the wages of sin. 
And so that that bondage, if you will, of sin, but also the burden of the sacrificial system under the old covenant, well, now it's different. He said, you bring spiritual sacrifices. And he's speaking specifically of words and deeds that bring glory to Christ. That's our call. That's our mission right there is to bring glory to God alone. And we do this with spiritual sacrifices, obviously something that was modeled even by Christ himself as he served others, as he taught, as he, as he provided uh, for the needs of others. We, we see a, just a selfless existence that Christ had as he, as he ministered and nurtured, and that that is a calling of the church today, of us, to be offering these spiritual sacrifices. Now, if you look back in 1 Peter 2, you'll notice in verses 6 through 8 that there are Old Testament quotes, just little snippets from the book. Uh, Two of them are from Psalms, and one of them is from uh, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And so Peter is picking up on some, some Old Testament language. But notice these are verses about judgment, because just as he begins this section in verse 4 by talking about coming to Christ, receiving Christ, worshiping Christ, he also recognizes that not everyone will believe, that there will be some, in fact, you could say most, who will reject. This is what he says in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And it goes on to even just see how, say that that those who reject, it's like they are tripping over that stone. Again, just that stone image that's in front of us. But what do we see? The takeaway is this. There are some who receive and there are some who reject. You might say, well, how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, I think it's a call to respond to him. And as I said a few minutes ago, maybe there are some with us that have not yet responded to the call of Christ. And this would be a day in which you could do that. You could respond to Christ and receive eternal life in him. But there are also many who reject him. Juan Sanchez in his commentary describes the rejection of Christ in these terms. He says, Jesus continues to be rejected today. People refuse to believe that Jesus is the only way to God. So they create their own religions and build their own temples and appoint their own priests. And as I read that, you know, I think naturally we think of some of the world religions, right? We think of of false religions and and buildings and and, uh, priests and so forth of these other religions. But couldn't some of those be ideologies Maybe that aren't declared as a quote-unquote religion, and yet there's still an ideology that is, that is going a direction that is different from the gospel. I mean, just think about, about some of the, the, the prevalent ideologies in our own culture. Just pick one, and then compare it to the gospel. And you can see that they have their own values. They have their own doctrinal statement. They have their own religious leaders, if you will, their own priests, And so that's where I think Juan is saying that that by rejecting Jesus, many will build what they want instead. And he gives another description. He said, some 
reject Jesus with a faint praise, saying he was a wise teacher who represents the good in all religions. Look at that statement. There are some that would, they would, they would, they would uphold that and say, yeah, we believe Jesus is a historical figure. We believe that Jesus had some good things that he did, and we would put him up there just to really represent all religion all over the world. And what would we as Christ followers say? What would we say? That's heresy, right? It's heresy. He wasn't just a good teacher, right? He was the Lord. He was the one who, who, who came, who lived and died and rose again. He himself, the creator of the world. So we have a much higher view of who Christ is. And so, so when someone tries to, to somewhat accept him and, and put him in this, this kind of a category, what they're really doing is they're rejecting him. We either take him for who he claims to be or we've actually rejected him. Now, there's one other description that he gives. He says, Jesus is not willing to be just one brick in our own building. He calls us to be built into his. And to everyone who hears that, it is either the most wonderful news or the most offensive. Think about that statement. He's saying we are called to be living stones in his building. But how many times do people try to do the opposite? They're building their own, they're, they're building their own building. Okay, I'll add Jesus to it. And I'll add him to all the other things that I think are important and value and all the other things that I worship. Well, it doesn't work that way. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, right? And so that's the, that's the description that Juan is helping us remember today. So there's a call here in 1 Peter to receive Christ and not reject him. But there is another application as well. Here's what it is. Just as Christ is rejected by the world, those who follow him will also be rejected to some degree and in some occasions. And we realize, we talked about this several weeks ago, it's different for different people. It may be in different countries. Their receptivity to, to Christians may be much more extreme. And there, there, there's modern-day martyrs in different parts of this world. And we here in America haven't seen it at those levels yet. But the principle is what Jesus told the disciples, right? That they, they hated me, don't be surprised when they hate you. And I think we see some of that even, in the, even within the culture that we live in. So, so Peter is making a direct connection. We are living stones connected to the living stone. Well, these, these uh, living stones were also called priests. And this means that they don't need any earthly intermediary to intercede for them. We as Christians can come into God's presence because of the work of Christ on our behalf. He's made ordinary people just like you and me, and he's allowed us to approach him as priests. So the church is filled with priest kings. And again, we, we realize there's responsibilities connected to that identity. I won't go through all of that. We did that, like I said, uh, about this time last year, but just a rich image of who you are, but also who we are when we gather together as a local church. So this is our first point. God's plan is to develop a Christ-like church. Our second point, and yes, it is our final point, and yes, it is a shorter point, I promise, than the first one, is this. God's people are to display his glory. So we have a mission. 
we have a calling as living stones to magnify Jesus Christ. Wherever it is that he takes us in this world, we belong to him. And we shine the light of the gospel. Wherever it is, whether it's in our home, our neighborhood, our workplace, wherever it is. And we have that opportunity as living stones being built up into a spiritual house. In fact, Daniel Hyde described it this way. He said, in the new covenant, there is still a holy place, but its building materials are not wood, stone, or precious metals. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and Christians are the walls of the new holy place. And so that, that's a very high calling that you and I have been given. So yes, we may long for the promised land. We may long for, for, for what he has planned for us in eternity. But for right now, as living stones, we have been given a, a tremendous honor to represent Christ right here. And aren't we glad there were others who represented Christ, others who were able to share the gospel with you and me, others who we were able to see their lives as they went from darkness to light. And for some of us, we've seen some very dramatic examples of people that were, that, 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 that were living far, far away from God. And when he saved them, it was a very, very powerful, powerful testimony. When these things happen, it brings glory to Christ. In fact, I love what it says in Ephesians 3, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. The idea that God is glorified in Christ and God is glorified in Christ's church, that you and I are on a mission to glorify, to magnify him. In fact, this is described in our passage. Look back at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, that's what our lives do. They reflect Christ. They are a testimony to his work within us, how he has saved us, how he has re rescued us from, from the bondage of sin and given us new life, new life in him. And this is to be the beauty and grace of Christ being made visible to the world around us. That's, that's, that's the mission of the church. And, and for some of that, it happens out in the community. I met with, with a lady in between services today briefly that I met at, um, in September when we were in the, at the Wildwood, Celebrate Wildwood Days. Met her there downtown Wildwood, and she's here worshiping with us today. I know many of you were a part of, of that day. It was a time, again, to magnify Christ, to share Christ with the community around us. Some of you just got back yesterday from serving in Guatemala. I know we had a, a really sizable team that went down to Guatemala, and they were sharing the gospel, and they were sharing with kids and with women. They were teaching in, in, uh, in church services. They were, they were building uh, facilities for, for the mission there and for the orphanage there. They were, they were, again, magnifying Christ in another part of this world. We have a church member today who's serving right now in southwest Florida. He's part of a disaster relief team. And there's another man from, from, uh, from our school, school board, that's going down later this week. And so, so that's taking Christ to, 
places of need, reflecting the the generosity or the grace of Christ to the world around us. That is our mission. So again, we think about who we are as a church. We think about about the lives that that we've been given as as living stones. And I I hope what, what we see in this passage is our identity in him that we see that we are a, a, a holy nation of people. In fact, other passages describe us as ambassadors. And who is an ambassador? One that's from one country representing that country to another. And those ambassadors gather in, in, in places called embassies, right? Well, here are the ambassadors gathered together in their embassy. And we've been meeting and we've been worshiping and we've been thinking about our mission to magnify Christ as we leave this place and go into the world around us. Well, today, two points. God's plan to develop a Christ-like church. And second, God's people, what are we to do? We are to display His glory. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the rich imagery of Your Word. And Lord, we know that there is so much here that describes who You are describes your grace, your mercy, your love. And it also, Lord, describes who we are, who we are in you. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. And as we've looked at this portion of Scripture today, we ask you to now apply it. Apply it to our daily living. Apply it to the way that we think. Apply it to the way in which we look at our schedule for the week that's ahead. Lord, may it give us pause to consider that even though we have received your mercy, there are still so many, so many that have not. So Lord, may we be on mission, reflecting the life of Jesus Christ, the life-giving power of the gospel that this world desperately needs. So Father, again, we thank you for who you are, We thank you that you're with us, that you inhabit the praises of your people today. We pray that Jesus Christ has been magnified and that he will be magnified and glorified in this church in the days that are ahead. For we pray this in his name and all of God's people said.